Well, in chapter 16 of John's Gospel, we're actually parachuted into the middle of the events of the last night, the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the eve of his crucifixion and death. If you read the events of that night, you will see that the disciples are just totally consumed with grief, with questions, with wondering what on earth is happening. That They seem to have had everything chopped away from under them. They haven't been moved out of their comfort zone. Their comfort zone has been shattered. Everything that they've held on to seems now to be shaky. The man they had followed for three years has said, I'm going away. He's even talked about being handed over to enemies and killed. Every year on this Sunday, in that general direction, there's a race held at Bathurst. And 30-odd cars line up on the starting straight. Actually, on the straight and around the corner, there's that many these days. And as they sit there, the drivers have one thing in their mind. Getting through hell. Because that first corner, after the start-finish straight, that right-handed, our left-handed 90-degree corner is called Hell Corner. And if you've ever seen the start of a Bathurst 1000 with four great thumping V8s trying to go around that 90-degree left-hander, you know why it is called Hell Corner. But these disciples don't have that concentration anymore. They could concentrate on Jesus in the past, but now that's gone. He's going. In fact, he's going to die, he says. The one they had clinged to for so long, the one they had relied on for so much, has said, I'm going. One could forgive Jesus for being self-centered at a time like this, I mean, if you knew you were going to be shot tomorrow morning, you'd probably be thinking, oh, woe is me. Come on, friends, gather around me and support me. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is supporting them. While he is the one who is going to suffer, he is supporting those who are going to grieve. And that's why, you're right, this is a love letter. A love letter from Jesus. A love letter to us. Not just the 11 still remaining in that upper room. Jesus has spoken of a lot of things, of him going to the Father, of him being the true vine, of the coming of the Holy Spirit, of how the world will hate the disciples. He's spoken of all these things. 
And they all seem to come together in this chapter 16 of John's Gospel before it then goes on to the great high priestly prayer as we know chapter 17 of John's Gospel. And he begins this chapter with a warning. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. There's the first warning. Be careful or you will go astray. Listen to what I say and you won't. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. That too will happen in a very short time. In the book of Acts, not long into the book of Acts, we meet with a despicable coward, a slimy man, a self-righteous man, a man who says when they're stoning Stephen, I agree with what you're doing, but doesn't have the guts to stand up and do anything himself, and he stands there holding coats. His name is Saul, a spineless scum agreeing with the death penalty, not having the courage to do anything about it itself except free up the arms of those throwing the stones. And Saul thinks he's doing the will of God, crushing this new sect called the Christians, getting rid of this threat, excuse me, to the Pharisees of which he is one. And what is more, he then goes to the high priest and said, give me some letters of introduction. I'm going to get some more of these people. And what's he going to do? He's going to bring it back to the high priest so that, again, they will deal with it. He doesn't. He just approves. He just collects. He hands over and everyone else does the dirty work. Just a bit of a digression for a while. Doesn't that show the wonder of God's love? This despicable, spineless coward known as Saul became Paul. What a turnabout. How can anyone doubt God's love when they consider the case of Paul? How can anyone doubt the love of God for us when they look at how much God loved him? I mean, I'm not going to ask you, but I think you've all done some pretty horrible things in your life. I know I have. But I've not stood by holding on to cloaks while someone is stoned to death. I've not gathered up people and taken them to the authorities to be tried, persecuted, tortured and killed. So if God can love Saul, If God can love Paul, he can even love me and he can love you. And it's in the power of that love that we go on through life even though we're persecuted, even though we're taunted, even though we're despised, even though we're called intellectual dwarfs, no matter what the world says or does to us, it doesn't matter because we walk through life in the power of the love of God. 
And if God be for us, who can be against us? Jesus has already said that he's going back to the Father, but he says that he's not going to leave them as orphans. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. And he picks up on this theme of the Holy Spirit again. Now I'm asking, I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counsel will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. One of my favorite authors, oh, thank you, is J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop of the century before last now. And quite often, Ryle says things like, there are depths in these words that are too deep to plumb. There is so much in this that we can't grasp at all. And that's true with this statement here. In fact, he did say that about this statement. So I was reading his commentary on John. Why couldn't the counsellor, why couldn't the Holy Spirit come while Jesus was still here? Why was it necessary for Jesus to return to the Father's side before the Holy Spirit could come? If you've got the answer to that question, I'd love you to tell me because I can't tell you. It's not as if the Spirit and the Son can't exist together. I mean, through all eternity before the world was even created, they were together in unified trinity at the time of creation we see the father uttering the word we see the spirit hovering like a dove and as we're told in the opening of john's gospel everything was made through and for jesus we have the trinity together they can coexist it's not as if jesus is here the spirit can't be here but for some reason And I somehow guess it's because they're taking up different functions. I think it's because Jesus is going to be the high priest at the right-hand side of God while the Spirit dwells within us here on earth. I think that's the reason, but I wouldn't go to the cross over it. I think that's the reason. But what Jesus is saying is that he has to go back to the Father... But in going back to the Father, he's going to empower them through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower them in a way that they're going to achieve. He says at one place even greater things than he has done. If you think about it, if you go over the three years of Jesus' ministry, he perhaps converted a hundred odd people, 200, we'll say 500 people. Yet on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 came to the Lord. The disciples really did, if you look at it, gain more people for the kingdom than Jesus did. That's one way of looking at it. Of course, it was all done in the power of Jesus, but numerically, they were more successful than Jesus was. 
And this is through the power of the Spirit that has been poured out. A power that will go out and convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of justice, or of judgment. So we have this Spirit coming down. He's been before. All the saints of the Old Testament, all the writers of the Old Testament were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not as though he's never been here before. The Spirit here was hovering over the creation as it was being created. But in a special way, the Spirit is now poured out upon the people of God. In a special way, the people of God are equipped for their service of God and equipped to endure the troubles the torments, the persecution, the torture, the death that can come to them in this world. But he also works in the world in general. And this is a, another passage that Ryle might say is too deep to plumb the depths of. Because when John talks about the world, nine times out of ten, by the world he means those outside of the Christian church, those that do not accept Christ as saviour, those out there who quite frankly don't give a hoot about Jesus. Handy word to use to curse with, oh Jesus Christ. But that's about as far as they go in recognising Jesus. A way of cursing. But have you ever noticed how even those out there will acknowledge that Jesus was an alright bloke? Some of the things that he taught make sense. You know, uh, Jesus, it's a shame he was so pig-headed that he died, but Jesus was okay. And some of the things that Jesus taught, they accept. And, and there's no rational reason, philosophically, for them to accept. I'll give you an example. When Julia Gillard was Prime Minister, strangely enough, they started talking about same-sex marriage. Gee, that's been going on a long time, hasn't it? And Julia Gillard, who was living with a man she wasn't married to, who did not have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, said she was in favour of traditional marriage. Where does that come from? Where does Julia Gillard and many others out there, I'm not persecuting her in particular, it's just one that sticks in my mind, where do these people get these ideas from? Where does the world's morality come from, warped though it might be? Where does the world ethics come from? Crazy though they might be. Those morals and those ethics that are right come from the Holy Spirit. Despite the fact they don't accept Christ as Saviour, despite the fact they might even deny the existence of God, despite the fact that the thought of being possessed by the Holy Spirit is anathema to them, despite all that, it is the Spirit working in the world that means that the world is not as bad as it could be. I mean, it's pretty darn bad, isn't it? Let's be honest. If we had our choice, the world would not be the way it is. But rest assured, it could be worse. 
The Spirit is acting as a restraining power in the world, holding it back from being as bad as it could be. So much for the spirit in the world. Now Jesus turns back to the spirit in the disciples and by extension, of course, the Holy Spirit in our lives. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Notice his tenderness and love. He's really hitting them. He's hitting them hard, but he's not hitting them as hard as he could be with this doctrine and this information and this knowledge because he recognises that they can't bear any more than what he's telling them. And he's holding back a little bit. He's not going full bore like a bull in a china shop. Or a bull in a china shop, I'm clumsy. Jesus is holding back out of his love and understanding and concern and care for these men who are deeply grieving, who are deeply confused. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth he'll not speak in his own he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you all that belongs to the father is mine that is why I say the spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you Is anyone coming up to exams, HSC or end of year exams anywhere? The Holy Spirit's not going to help you park science, I'm sorry to tell you. That's not the truth that he reveals. The truth that the Holy Spirit reveals is all that is necessary for salvation. The truth about just who Jesus is. The truth about just what Jesus has done. Taking these marks off the page of the scriptures and making them real. This death of Jesus on the cross is not an event that had relevance only 2,000 years ago. It's an event that has relevance right here, right now. And that's the truth that the Spirit will guide us into. The truth that will lead us to paradise. The truth that will take us out of this world of woe into the glory of heaven. Where forever we'll live without sin. Where forever we'll live without pain. Where forever we'll live and we'll see Jesus face to face. That's the truth that the Spirit will reveal to God's people. The truth of God's love and God's saving grace in Christ Jesus. The truth that will carry us to glory. Then Jesus moves on again. Moves on with another puzzling statement. It's a complicated and confusing chapter, this isn't it? So much in it that can be misconstrued or interpreted in different ways. In a little while, you will see me no more. Then after a little while, you will see me. 
Confused? You're in good company. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and and because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Here's... 11 men who have walked intimately with Jesus for three years has been taught by the Master himself, face to face. They have heard his glorious voice ring in their ears. They, with their own eyes, have seen the marvellous miracles and signs that Jesus has performed. We don't understand what he's saying. We are in good company when we don't understand things in the Bible. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't throw the Bible away because, oh, I can't understand it. Remember about the Spirit who will guide us into all truth? We read the Bible with a prayer to the Spirit that he will reveal the truth to us. And if not the whole truth, at least enough for us to grasp and say, well, I can see how that is relevant. You may not have the deep understanding of a doctor of divinity, but you'll have enough to enable you to enter glory. You see, you you don't have to pass an MDiv exam to enter heaven. You don't have to pass any exam. All you need to do is to love Jesus. Jesus saw what they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, you are asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices, and that's going to happen very soon. That's going to happen the very next day. as the king of glory is murdered by being nailed to a cross. Where God in skin is butchered. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Interesting little phrase that. It doesn't say your grief will be replaced by joy. The grief itself will be turned into joy. He gives a beautiful example. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when a baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. The pain of childbirth is turned into joy as the mother gazes into the face of the child she has given birth to. I've, I've never been in a hospital when a child was born. Barbara reckoned she wanted the doctors worrying about her, not me, if I passed out. I've never, I have no real concept of the pain of childbirth. Although I have had kidney stones and some women say that's even worse. I don't know. I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm never going to be able to compare But have you noticed how many women go through the agony of childbirth and then have another child and then another child? We have friends who had six children. 
pair of twins included. The pain of childbirth is turned to joy when we see the gift of a precious new life. I knew a guy at Wagga, he was an obstetrician and he was in his 80s when I knew him and I don't know how many children he'd given birth to. But he said to me one day as we were walking over to have some morning tea, you know, Derek, every child I've seen born is a miracle. Here's a man who could have just dismissed it as run-of-the-mill, something that happens every day, something that he has seen hundreds, perhaps thousands of times. But he saw birth as a miracle of God. And I can just about imagine how a mother, after the agony of childbirth, looking into the face of the child, can feel joy. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day you will no longer ask me anything, I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. I had a very good friend at Dungog, my first parish as an ordained minister. And of all things, he was a local Roman Catholic priest. We got on famously together. We had a wonderful time. Barbara went one day to a um, Catholic women's service. And James was at the door when Barbara came out and... He said, how did you enjoy that, Barbara? She said, that's great, but we Presbyterians have an advantage over you. We don't have to pray through Mary. We pray through Jesus direct. And that's one of the great blessings that Jesus promises us here. We have direct access to God in prayer. We don't need a priest. We have the high priest, the great high priest, Jesus himself seated at God's right hand. We don't need any saints. We don't need co-redemptrix, we don't need anything like that. We have the gift of speaking to God. Have you ever considered what a blessing that is, by the way? Here he is, the great creator of everything, the one who with the word brought everything into being, the one through whose power everything that is continues to exist. And what does he say to you and me? Talk to me anytime, anywhere. And call me your father. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's pretty loving. The Almighty saying to you and to me, talk to me. And call me your father. How can you doubt the love of God? Skip over that bit about going and coming again. And we'll come to what is really the punchline of chapter 16 of John's Gospel. 
You believe at last, Jesus answered, but a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. That was going to happen the very next day. There's only one disciple who remained at the cross, John. And to that disciple, Jesus entrusted his mother, which is another thing that I I don't really understand about Roman Catholicism. If Mary is a co-redemptrix, why didn't Jesus leave John in Mary's care? Why did he feel it necessary to leave Mary in John's care? That's something else to think about. I have told you these things, Jesus says, so that in me you may have peace. I don't know what it's like in your Bible, but if you go back from there in my Bible to there, you'll find in chapter 14, verse 27, these words. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I have told you these things so that in me you may have that peace. A peace that cannot come from this world. A peace that can come only from the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. A peace that dispels trouble, a peace that obliterates fear. But You know, Jesus loves us so much that he won't hide the truth from us. My mum used to say, never say you hate anything. There's something I hate. And that's the health and wealth gospel. If you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. That's something a sick person wants to hear at the time, isn't it? Not only are they sick, not only are they depressed, not only are they going through the worst time of their life, now they're told they don't have enough faith. Appalling doctrine. Appalling theology. Why? Because Jesus himself says it's appalling. In this world you will have trouble. Be prepared for it. Don't go looking for it. I mean, if we accept the gospel, if we proclaim the gospel, the gospel will offend, but whatever you do, don't you be offensive. Don't go looking for trouble. Don't go looking to cause offence by your own actions. If the gospel offends, so be it. You won't need to go looking for trouble, let me assure you. It will find you. In this world you will have trouble. Even Paul, after the great event on the Damascus Road, prayed three times for the Lord to remove the pain in his side, the thorn in his side, the whatever it was that was afflicting him. And what was God's reply? In your weakness I show my power. Even the great Paul suffered. In this world, you will have trouble. 
In this world, you will be persecuted. In this world, you will be ridiculed because of your faith in me. But then comes the punchline. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Christ is the great conqueror. Christ conquers our troubles and our fears. Christ conquers the terrible effects of the troubles of this world. Christ has conquered the prince of this world, Satan. And we're the benefits of it. We're the beneficiaries. We're the ones who are set free from sin and guilt. We're the ones who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, leading us into all truth that will lead us into paradise. We are the ones who can turn to the Almighty God, the creator and sustainer of everything, and say, hey, Father, I want to raise this matter with you. Brothers and sisters in this world, we will have trouble. Expect it. Don't look for it and don't cause it. In this world, we will have trouble. But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world.